Hey, Diddly China is produced together with our friends at Radii, this awesome independent media platform. If you're interested in culture and innovation in China, you should definitely check out RadiiChina.com. They'll give you an inside look into everything from China's underground music scene to bike sharing. That's R A D I I China dot com. I I feel that you know working in China and working in the West, comparing Beijing versus、um, Silicon Valley, they're like two parallel universes. <laughs> Basically, they have their own rules and they focus on different things. But you know, every now and then the world collapses. So over the past few years, China's tech industry has been a huge beneficiary of its so-called highway or sea turtle population, which refers to Chinese nationals who study or work overseas before returning to the motherland. So today's episode will be about their experience and their stories. I was visiting Bay Area、uh, a year and a half ago. This is Andy Liu. He's the founder of Futureform, a design agency that specializes in product and UX design for AI-related projects. He spent about nine years abroad in Singapore and Canada before moving back to Beijing a few years ago. I was eighty percent of the people I met. I first met them back in Beijing, so so that was the interesting point. You know, you see this sort of interconnection for those top talents. You know, from you know founding level to talents level, they spend their time across. Throughout this episode, I'm really looking forward to both doing a reality check on where China is right now, but also discuss the potential and see if China actually can attract all these talented people back in order, you know, to build a new China 2.0. Welcome to Digitally China, a podcast about the fascinating Chinese, Chinese tech industry, industry created together with Radii. I'm Eva. I'm Jacob, and I'm Tom. According to various studies, China's gaming industry is now, in fact, the largest in the world. You may know their messaging app called WeChat. Chinese outbound M&A. Chinese corporates are buying international、yeah. companies at record pace. Hottest phone you've probably never heard of. China's Xiaomi. Yes, it's state. It's claim to Apple's crown. Major deal over in China. You have Chinese tech giant Tencent leading an 8.6 billion dollar acquisition to buy a major stake in Supercell. 14.3 billion dollars in sales clocked by a Chinese e-commerce site in one wild day. So I am personally very curious about this topic because I've seen a, a lot of Chinese people or Haiguei, you know, move back to China in search of better opportunities. You know, personally,、uh, my parents moved to the U.S. in search for a better life, and I've now returned to further my own career. And also recently, one of my dad's friends moved back, which is pretty crazy because he originally moved from China to the U.S. in search of you know better opportunities, better education, and is now. I'm working as a VP of a tech company because, in a single generation, China's tech industry has grown so much. Which again, I think, shows how quickly China has developed in just twenty,、uh, thirty years of time. Yeah, it's kind of ironic, right? You know, our parents moving away from China to give us a better future, and then we move back. And this is something we share with a lot of Chinese people in our generation. There's actually quite a few prominent highway in China's tech industry, like Lu Qi, the ex-CEO of Baidu, China's largest search company, who now runs Y Combinator's China program. There's also Liu Zhen, who used to work at Uber China, but now works as a senior VP of Chinese unicorn ByteDance, or Colin Huang, the CEO of e-commerce upstart Pinduoduo. 
And in this episode, we've chosen to focus on people who work in artificial intelligence or AI because it's such an important industry, not just in China, but all over the world. And it's one of the areas where talent, not just in China, but globally, is in shortage. And for China, it's even more important as it tries to become a global tech leader to attract more and more talented people、uh, from overseas, not just Highway, but foreign talent in general. Yeah, I think、uh, looking at AI as an example of the sea turtle population of Chinese nationals coming back to China in order to feed the Chinese innovation makes sense, considering it is the most sought-after talent globally right now. And I also think there's been a lot of media reports, a lot of discussions last year and the year before about China's rise in AI, China versus U.S. Even you know some people calling it the AI Cold War and stuff like this. So I think it's really important to see, to kind of view through the highway lens, which markets more appealing, or what things about like let's say China's research environment or the U.S. research environment, work culture, things like that. 我叫季张龙，我来自安徽芜湖，现在在美国硅谷为 Facebook 工作。So this is Ji Zhanlong. He works at Facebook in Silicon Valley right now,、um, but he's originally from Anhui Province in China and is currently working on Friend Suggestion. So when I asked Ji about differences between China versus U.S., maybe the challenges of working in each market as an AI engineer, machine learning engineer. He framed it as, you know, what people complain about in his circle in China and the U.S. So in China, a lot of the engineers complain about working too much, and this was actually something that several AI researchers and engineers I spoke to they all repeated this. In China, there's this concept called nine nine six, which is working from nine a.m. to nine p.m. six days a week, right? And so he said in China, a lot of people complain about the nine nine six culture. But if you're talking about Silicon Valley, people complain about this. You know what some people call the bamboo ceiling. I mean, here he's talking specifically about Chinese people. But、um, you know, why is it so hard for Chinese people to move up the corporate ladder or get manager positions? And he specifically said, you know, some people wonder like, why are Chinese people so good at technology but are unable to get promotions or salary raises? Which I think is an interesting point. He's not the only one who said that either, by the way. And so then he basically summarized it as like in China, you're too tired, but here you have a glass ceiling, and some companies are too chill. And if they're too chill, then people feel like, you know, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, nine nine six. <laughs> That's actually stirred up quite a lot of、uh, discussions between U.S. and China, right? My understanding of it is that nine nine six is mostly true for engineering teams and some of the larger companies, because it's really hard to talk about working hours for early stage startups. I think they are more or less the same globally. Even the Silicon Valley early stage startups work insanely hours, right? But nine nine six as a concept, you know, working nine to nine six days a week. I've heard many people also refer to it、um, that the big tech companies in China actually do it. It's kind of crazy to think about it because they are more or less formally asking all their employees to work those hours. I mean, in the U.S., it would be illegal, right? So I agree that I think startup culture worldwide is pretty can be pretty punishing. 
and people who are in the startup world kind of embrace it. And I guess you kind of have to, you know, you're hustling or whatever. But I do think maybe even at big tech companies in China, people work overtime a lot and it's kind of accepted, you know. I don't know if you would consider Palantir a startup, but when I was there um, just as an intern a few years ago, people were not working 996, you know, and it's, I'm not saying that people don't work hard or people aren't productive, but it's just not framed that way, you know, like come in at nine or come early, leave late, and then come in every day. You know, it's much more flexible. And I think there is more of an emphasis on work-life balance or the idea that if you do give yourself some time for personal things or rest, it'll help you be, you know, a better employee. Let's actually talk about why 996 exists. And my translation of this is that, you know, 996 originally came from lower skilled workforce. For example, it's very common in China, an internet company or a normal company would, let's say, have 5,000 salespeople whose only job is to call, call, call and sell whatever product, right? And, And that type of demographic of people doing that are usually very young people from smaller cities without any formal education. And that's actually where 996 kind of started because they are run more or less like a, you know, military discipline team. And every day you're just going to hammer that phone and get me the results. And that's where it started. And I think the main reason why, you know, let's say high skilled talent base are complaining about 996 is that in at least of the people I've spoken to and, and that I know, everyone that are super smart and highly skilled actually work quite a lot automatically. But it's more just that when the company says something like that, it kind of indicates that they don't value your brains. They just value your hours. And you expect to be a machine and not like an innovator or you know someone coming up with a new algorithm, etc., Yeah, I mean, I think the element of choice really impacts how people feel about working every time, you know, like, oh, I can leave whenever I want, but I just am really invested in what I'm doing. That's why I'm, you know, taking extra time to work on it. And I also think in China, there's this common concept of daka or clocking in and out. And I think that that can happen at big tech companies, too. And I don't know that that's the same at places like Google or Facebook, which I think are a bit more chill. So, I mean, startups, I think, again, in China, don't think that they impose DACA, but it is more of a commonly known concept. So if your boss is like, oh, we're going to do DACA now, everyone's like, okay, I get it. Like, we need to come in at a certain time. Yeah, and again, I think this is kind of a big difference between kind of Western and Chinese culture. And I think this is the main weak point that Chinese tech companies and Chinese larger company have, which is that through the way they're communicating some of these tasks and through the ways they're implementing some of these rules, you're making the talent feel you're just one tiny part and you're just there to do your freaking job and get it finished. And you actually mean nothing for this company, which is radically different from, for example, how Google treats their employees in the US. You know. Even though I think, you know, at the end of the day, Google are tracking that type of data in different ways. Putting in the hours for work and working super hard does have some inherent value, right? Like, I'm not going to discredit that. 
But I do think that, you know, besides C, like other interviews also mentioned in both positive and negative light, like, wow, when I returned to China, I didn't realize or I was really impressed by how hard people work here and how long the hours are. Actually, another person that I spoke to, he said at first he was really excited to experience 996. You know, he came from Canada. They really value work-life balance over there, right? And he mm -hmm. was really keen to, to try, you know, what he'd heard a lot about. And for the first few months, it was great. And then he started to feel burnt out. And he felt like his team was also, you know, burning out. I think one last thing I want to say about 996 is that everyone has mentioned the fierce competition in China and how that also drives the 996 culture. So, you know, you work super hard and put in really long hours because you're afraid that if you don't, your competitors will and that them putting in more time will allow them to beat you. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is just part of a maturity curve because, you know, when you as a tech company are building a product where the level of innovation is slightly lower, i.e. you're just catching up to your competitors or whatnot, then, you know, the more hours you put in probably gives you a pretty good result. But when it is about coming up with something entirely new that no one's done before, especially, let's say, in the AI field, then it's less about actually how many hours you spend in the office and it's more about how you unlock the minds of these brilliant people you just spent a lot of money to hire. And I think if we talk about downsides of the Chinese tech industry, I think in this area, Chinese tech companies are still lagging behind that they're looking at the entire employee base in the exact same way. You know, they should actually start doing as a lot of U.S. companies, which is kind of, you know, having different strategies and different rules and policies depending on what type of talent and what type of team. I mean, I suspect that at companies, let's say, you know, a big tech company that has an AI lab, I'm sure the AI lab has more freedom than the people who are just executing, whether it's sales or, you know, marketing people, right? So I feel that there is, of course, like you could say disparity in terms of benefits or freedom of choice in the company, like in any in any country. But yeah, I think it's there's a lot of debate over this 996 thing. Like, I don't know if you remember, but I think a few years ago, this pretty prominent venture capitalist from Sequoia Capital wrote this huge op about China's work culture and how Silicon Valley needs to learn from it. I don't know if you remember that, but there's like a lot of hot debate around what he said. Yeah, and in some ways I actually agree because if I compare Chinese startups with a lot of startups in, for example, Sweden, where I come from, I would say that the Swedish startups have gotten too much of the work-life balance culture. So obviously, if I were to come from that angle, I would have said the same thing as the Sequoia Capital guy. Basically, just because I think Swedish startups are on one extreme, while Chinese startups are on the other. And the best way is probably somewhere, you know, there in the middle. Yeah, I guess the darker side of the startup world is that like a lot of people suffer from depression. So I think it's probably good to kind of try to balance those two extremes. I'm actually very fascinated about the bamboo or the glass ceiling that he also mentioned, which when I translate it, is just more about, you know, the difference in culture. Obviously, someone that's not native in English will have a harder time to go around and talk to your bosses and really sell what you're doing in order to, you know, climb the career ladder. 
it would be the same thing for someone that isn't native in Chinese to go to China and work for a company. They would also claim the same ceiling. Make sense? Yeah. So I actually spoke to Mike Lei from Mobvoi, which is a Chinese AI company, and Mike said, you know, like. One part of it is simply the language barrier and the cultural barrier, right?、Uh, English isn't first language of Haiguai or people working in the U.S. having moved from China, right? So that's part of it. And he said that when you're not in your native language or not in your home environment, you're also less aggressive or less assertive, right? Which is important for maybe more top level positions where you have to make decisions. My personal experience of this is that both in U.S. companies and in Chinese companies, most organizations have a huge inefficiency, which is that sometimes they are promoting the wrong people from a data point of view, obviously, and that's because the larger company gets. The harder it is to actually measure every employee based on the same objective data set, and you know, promoting the perfect candidate, because there are also a lot of soft values there that you know whoever that promotes you will look at, and sometimes their judgment is wrong. I wouldn't actually one hundred percent agree with him that that exists so much in the U.S., but maybe less in China, which is a little bit what he indicates. But for a Chinese national, or for someone at least. With a different native language than English, obviously being in that type of environment in the U.S. makes it harder for you to progress in your career, and I think that's a key reason why a lot of people would move back to China, both because you know of the culture, I want to be home, right, but also because it's easier for me to talk to my manager and it's easier for me to progress in my career as long as I'm doing a good job. Because I can talk in my native language, I can hang out with my boss or with my colleagues, and I know exactly how to play the system. I agree that the difference in how high people can climb in China versus U.S. there's a big gap, right? And that motivates a lot of people to kind of seek better fortunes、um, after working overseas, you know, back in China. But I also think that there are a lot of Haiguai with really good English language skills, right? So I don't, I don't know if the fact that their native language isn't English and the fact that they come from a different culture kind of explains. This point about the bamboo ceiling, because there are people who manage to go to rise up even though they're not native English speakers, right? Yeah, of course. And I'm just saying the probability of success is slightly lower when、uh, you haven't grown up、uh, watching the same movies as your colleagues. When you don't talk the same language natively, I mean, whether or not it's just a perception, the fact that multiple people feel this way, and there's this term bamboo ceiling, which also f- refers to Asian Americans, I think. I mean. This perception is it does make people feel like they have limits to how high or how hard they can push their career, right? But I do agree. Like, if you're a foreigner in China, is it going to be harder for you to be a VP or an executive or even a manager at a Chinese tech company? Absolutely, right. So actually, another point that this surprised me that came up in my interviews was,、uh, of course, compensation and money. And I was surprised to hear that you know one interviewee he said that Chinese tech firms pay less than U.S. ones. And this is to give people some context. Um, the person I spoke to has maybe been working for a few years, so perhaps his friends are not super senior, but they're all working in AI or hard tech, right? Mm-hmm. And so, according to him, he said that Google offers an average of three hundred thousand dollars a year 
But in China, the U.S. dollar equivalent from, let's say, Huawei was only around eighty thousand. So that's like a difference of you know several multiples, right? Wow. I mean, I was surprised because I always thought that Chinese companies would kind of throw money at really talented engineers because it's such like a straightforward way. And I think not just Chinese companies; like any company will like throw money at people that they really want to join because it's such a straightforward way of getting people on board. Yeah, and then we have that famous thing from was it the ByteDance CEO that did that a few years ago? Yes, basically saying that you know I'm looking for this talent. We'll pay like. Unlimited money. I think also it's important to remember, like different Chinese tech companies have different payment schemes. And when I talked to the Ma Boy CTO, his take was that、um, Chinese tech companies offer junior people less to start with, but that their pay can increase faster than if you were at a U.S. tech company, like something like twenty percent in a year or something. If you're a junior AI person. But U.S. tech companies will offer fresh grads a lot of money, but it increases more slowly. Yeah, and that was actually one of the main things that surprised me when I came to China, which is the huge salary increase that exists for junior people. You know, even companies like KPMG, like totally different industries. You know,、um, basically the way they work is that you know they get a fresh grad in quite a lot of them, but then within three to four years, there are a lot of people that more than double or triple their salary. So I'm wondering. Whether this is maybe just a different view on so-called junior people, i.e., people with less work experience, that they are maybe supposed to kind of put in a few hard years first and not do the very hard stuff first before they have kind of proven themselves, so they can move on and do you know the important stuff for the company. Feels very Asian. <laughs> yeah, stereotypically Asian. For me, it's probably this kind of. 社会文化环境的一些改善。So that was Z again from Facebook, and just to quickly summarize, I think the last really important piece that Hai Gui and overseas Chinese、uh, mentioned to me about what influences their decision to move back or not, which is lifestyle and. Also, some maybe social issues as well. When discussing whether or not to move back, you know, which comes up, he says everyone thinks about it,、uh, at least in his friend circle. People at one point were really had heard some negative rumors coming from the Chinese tech industry, and so he specifically talked about there are people saying that、uh, Huawei was firing people according to age. You know, so can't really verify that, but so he was saying that because people thought this, they're really afraid that when they return. When they returned, by the time they're forty or forty-five, they'd be fired because of that. So this was a concern. And then he said,、um, around that time, there were also other negative news coming out from China, like a kindergarten affiliate with C Trip, a big travel company in China. There are teachers that were pricking students with needles,、um, and then there's been other scandals like vaccine scandals, you know, food safety things like this. And that he said. This stuff happens everywhere, but the aftermath of these scandals really worries people like him. So you know, the Chinese government trying to suppress the incident and get rid of the people who point out the problem instead of just handling those who are responsible for the scandal in the first place. So I think you know, I spoke to maybe five Haigui plus overseas Chinese. So I'm just saying that the sample size is small. So I think people view moving back. It's very. It's a highly personal decision, right? Like if you have family in China or aging parents, you might just move back solely because of that. But I do think it's important 
to think about the lifestyle or these social issues, especially if people want to have kids, right, and raise their kids in a certain environment. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, it's pretty apparent that for a lot of people, especially that work in the tech industry, you know, work on the West Coast in the U.S., you know, with these nice salaries and packages, uh, they have a much better lifestyle uh, over there in California. Even if we're not talking about kindergartens, just the nature itself enables you to have a better uh, lifestyle, right? And then China isn't perfect, US isn't perfect, but when we are comparing, for example, living in San Francisco and having access to all of that, what it entails if you have high enough salary, comparing that to, to work in Beijing, then it's pretty clear what people would choose from a lifestyle perspective, right? Yeah, and I think... Scandals aside, like the healthcare system in China is um, harder to navigate. It's more complicated. And I guess if you're a senior AI researcher or engineer, you can obviously go to a private clinic. But all those things are really expensive. Then your kids have to go to an international school, you know, if you don't want to send them to the public school in China. And with the things like vaccines, like I guess you could say, well, it doesn't happen all the time. Like not all vaccines are fake or expired. But And it's hard for me to hypothesize because I'm not a parent. But it's just this uncertainty, I guess. Like you don't know. And then the fact that first, you know, politicians try to hide it. Do, you know, they don't release news about it. And then they just kind of like punish the whistleblowers. And then finally, they kind of, you know, they fire the, the top leadership or whoever's in charge. And then that's it. And then it happens again and again. I mean, yes, I think I would feel very insecure. And this is why people go to Hong Kong, right, to buy baby powder or to get vaccines. And not everyone can do that, right? So what I hear from this is basically that, you know, if you're slightly younger, no family, and you're in the U.S., and you are thinking about moving back to China, the key things that worry you are maybe some part of the lifestyle, but the key thing that makes you want to move back is getting back to your own culture, um, being able to progress more in your career, make more money. But let's say you've progressed a little bit more already. You have family, you have a really good income in the United States. You know, you have good access to health care, thanks to, you know, Google or Facebook and you have good access to schools and all that, then obviously there are way more downsides with the current status in China because getting the equivalent in Beijing or Shanghai is extremely expensive, which would mean that you need to make more money than you did in the US just to be able to have the same lifestyle as before. That being said, I think outside of, let's say, let's broaden it, not just Haigui, but foreigners. I mean, a lot of people move to China and bring their families for their career, right? So it depends on what you're willing to sacrifice, right? Like everything comes at a cost. So I think it's not really up for debate that there are these social and political issues in China. Um, everyone can see it differently. Or like, you know, you and I are both in China, right? Mm -hmm. we, we've accepted, we are willing to sacrifice or give up certain things because we believe that's good for our careers or we have other reasons to say, right? So, so at, at the end of the day, I mean, the progression of technology innovation in China is kind of at the core of it because without that, it wouldn't be attractive to move back, right? And within that area, we're seeing quite a lot of uh, progression. I mean, at least 
when it comes to a bunch of people in Shanghai that I run into that have moved back here, it's very apparent that the key reason they move back is that they want to be a part of this big thing happening in China right now that they believe will surpass the United States in terms of level of innovation. And they want to learn from it in order to either position themselves much better for the future, but also just, you know, because it's fun to be part of something new. Yeah, and I think the new part, again, you know, a lot of people, when they move back, they want to start their own thing, right? Like, and if you want to start... If you want to build a startup and get VC funding as a Chinese person with probably more contacts in China and there's more opportunity in China, then moving back is kind of a, an obvious choice, right? One of the big takeaways that I had was that after conducting these interviews, kind of the arguments about why one market is stronger than the other, let's say for AI, they don't really make sense. So, for example, the arguments basically boil down to China has a lot of data and weak privacy laws, which is good for, let's say, deep learning, artificial intelligence. On the U.S. side, there's more world-leading AI researchers and there's a better research environment. So the fundamental AI research is stronger. Those are kind of like the main arguments like for or against for both countries. Mm -hmm. But I think... You know, the world is much more globalized than that argument makes it out to be. So, for example, a lot of this AI research that's done, let's say, by people in the U.S. or other countries, a lot of it's open source, right? TensorFlow is open source. Like, people in China can immediately apply that research that's done by people in the U.S. and build really good applications that are powered by open source software. So this weakness, I guess or the so-called weakness, doesn't really apply here because it doesn't hold engineers anywhere back, right? Like as long as you can run TensorFlow, even though let's say Google Cloud is blocked in China, you can also run it on local servers or your own cloud service, right? So that doesn't really apply here. And I think, you know, the people who are actually building or researching, developing this cutting edge research, these new applications, aka like, you know, both overseas, Haigui, whatever, like these engineers and researchers, I don't think they actually view their career or work in geopolitical terms. I'm sure maybe some do, but people don't do what they do because of loyalty for their country, right? Mm -hmm. In the tech industry, right? People don't think of it that way. People will like they'll move back or they'll stay in the U.S. because of how the market treats them and what the opportunities are. So, for example, if the bamboo ceiling didn't exist in the U.S. or, you know, the perception of that, then people would stay. They would build their own really great startups in the U.S. If, let's say, China didn't have all these scandals or like the education system was not so costly, then people would have less of a barrier to moving back. So it's a very fluid population, right? Then maybe spend a few years in China, then move back to the U.S. or go to another market, right? Go to Europe. So this kind of mobility of talent and the fact that a lot of technology is globalized, for me at least, makes a lot of this China versus U.S. or China versus the world in tech, uh, I guess, a bit less compelling for me. Yeah, like at the end of the day, what we're actually talking about is a Chinese-based technology company versus a U.S.-based technology company. And can the Chinese-based technology company attract back some Chinese nationals to work for them and offer the same perks, opportunities and challenges in order to you know, get these really smart people to want to work for them. And why for me this topic is important is that we know having a global talent pool is the only way 
you can become really big and really awesome as a company that we have learned from Google, Facebook, and all these based in Silicon Valley. But for the Chinese tech companies, they are kind of in the first chapter right now. If they can't attract back Chinese nationals that are currently in the US, they will never be able to attract you know, other nationalities to come work for them. And that's going to be critical for the ambitions to take over the world. Yeah, and I guess like my one last point about this like China versus whatever, China versus US AI framing is that it kind of also masks the fact that a lot of universities around the world partner with Chinese tech companies or Chinese universities, which makes sense. Like if you're doing leading research in an area I'm interested in, let's work on it together. Like why not collaborate? Again, like I think in in, in research, like it's not always so geopolitically driven, right? So like I know Carnegie Mellon, for example, I believe works with Tencent's AI lab. Their researchers work with people all over the world. So I guess that's also why a lot of this rhetoric kind of hides that. And I don't know, I guess it feels a bit limiting. At the end of the day, it's not about the discussion that one needs to fail in order for the other to succeed. But uh, we're seeing that the Chinese tech companies have grown a lot in the home market and now are preparing themselves for the next 10 years where they are hopefully, according to them, going to expand more globally and become really influential in that way. And that's why this topic is so interesting, obviously, because we're trying to understand the trend of the Chinese tech companies. And, you know, if we're going to see the same type of very international, innovative kind of environments that we currently see in areas like Silicon Valley or Berlin... Digitally China is produced by me, Jacob Noven, Eva Xiao, and Tom Shang, and is powered by Radii, an independent media platform exploring culture, innovation, and life in China. You can find them at radiichina.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>